Hello and welcome to Choosing an Agency. My name's Alex and I'm here to talk about how to select the right agency to grow your business, giving you the inside line on things to look out for the next time you need external support. I'll be interviewing industry figures from all manner of backgrounds to get hints and tips on the things to consider when choosing an agency. Today I'm joined by the amazing Mark Williams-Cook from Canda. Hello Mark. Hello, thanks for having me Alex. So for people who are just meeting you for the first time, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So I've been, um, I say, bopping around the SEO industry for about the last 16 years. Um, I've been agency side for most of that, so I think 12, 13 years now. Um, I cut my teeth in SEO making my own sites and started off kind of doing affiliate stuff and realizing I could make things rank in well, Google and AltaVista at the time and uh, ended up moving to an agency and essentially that grew to the point now a few agencies later. Um, I'm director at Canda, which is digital agency based in Norwich. We've got a team of 16 and we are a primarily kind of a search marketing company but we have in-house designers developers as well so we do build sites and apps and that kind of thing perfect and i've got a love a lot of love for the fair county of norfolk and especially norwich as they're my football team and i love the way you pronounce candor <laughs> correctly <laughs> so could you share um some information about you know the project or piece of work that you are most proud of oh wow um so I guess at the at the moment, the project I'm most proud of is actually an, an internal one, uh, which is alsoasked.com. And that's um, a project that was like, I think many things born out of necessity. So we've, we do try, we've got a few of our own products as an agency. So outside of, of client work, I tend to try and foster anything that falls into the category of shadow IT. So shadow IT, for those that hadn't heard the term before, and I actually hadn't until a couple of years ago, is is when if you go into companies, you have found that people have just engineered solutions, made their own programs or have their own processes to help do a job because nothing currently exists. And I found whenever people are doing that within a company, it's usually highlighting there's a gap there for for something and so also asked is a tool that takes the it's a keyword research tool that takes google's people also ask and kind of curates aggregates all that data maps it out as part of our our keyword research process so we had a little version that we used internally as our shadow it piece for when we were doing keyword research or, or part of that for clients and we we made an online version of that so people could go and type in a keyword and see the data that we were using. And I just thought I'd put it out there to see if anyone would want it. And it got a really good reception. And over the last sort of year or so, it grew to we're serving on average around a million searches a day. Um, yeah, so... Um, and that's obviously not a million users. That's just people doing lots of searches uh, mm-hmm. and, and using the tool. So that's that's actually something I'm really proud of because we've made something I think that is of value to a lot of people. Um, it's been free up until this point. I hope um, one day once we've got it uh, to a stage where I'm really happy with it, we can turn that into a paid product for us. But that that's sort of most recently one of the things that's that's 
got me out of bed in the morning and made me excited to work on. I think as a um, as an agency in the SEO space, us guys here at Climbing Trees, we actually use also us. We think it's fantastic. The visualization of mapping of the questions is really beautifully done. And you've just it was in not beta. What was it before beta? Yeah, so we we released an alpha version, and so the alpha the sort of definition there is that. Um, here's a thing, <laughs> all of the features we want to put in aren't there yet and it's probably broken. And then this, at the beginning of this year, we released the beta, which is the, we've got all the features done that we would like and we're pretty sure they're working, but help test it for us. And we got some really good feedback there, um, which which is part of what we're working on now. And the popularity as well. So the main thing we needed to test was the scalability. So how many how many visitors users can we take because even doing stuff like you know each of those trees that we generate from one search is is cached so it's saved but when we have so many of these done you know the database even in days was enormous it was like gigabytes within like days so that it at scale comes lots of interesting problems challenges sorry not problems opportunities opportunities challenges yeah the other thing, to not to go too deep into it, which I personally hadn't encountered before, was this um, this cascade when you do get a problem. So what I mean by that is, so say for whatever reason, the system that handles the searches slows down, right? So that's like an issue for whatever reason that's creaking a bit. That then has a domino effect in that there's a separate system that manages the queue and another system that manages kind of proxy health. And that backs up then and creates problems for these other systems. And then they go down. So the the logic for actually alerting and mitigating issues, not only do you need like, oh, if this happens, do this. You need some overall type of code to, to say, okay, well, things a and b are broken so c will break next so we need to fix this thing first so it needs to kind of triage which where the bottleneck is um which which is interesting so that kind of problem solving was way more complicated than i thought it was going to be well if i was texting you i'd send you a mind-blown emoji right now (laughs) that's well that's how i felt the first time things really started to creak but i think with i think we're there now we've got a really good uh dev team working on it so that's the thing I'd, I'd say you know put my put my hands up all this uh like you know back end while well, the front end now as well it's it's all been built by a dev team so although that was um originally my idea that it's well above my pay grade now in terms of how it's been developed so i'm really proud of the team for being able to pull that off excellent and so part of the reason behind trying to you know pull this podcast series together is to synthesize some helpful advice about choosing an agency for clients to sort of utilise. And so we've got some questions that we're going to come on to that are that focus specifically around that. So what's the worst advice you've ever heard the client be given? <laughs> what, in terms of SEO or picking an agency? or It could be like practical advice. So in terms of for SEO, or it could be um, just general advice in terms of choosing an agency. Sure. Well, I think some will be generous and call them SEO agencies are quite uh, aggressive with their sales techniques. And I actually published a a few weeks ago now a a podcast where 
I had been emailed saying, and it was actually about also us saying, okay, we've, we've done an audit of your website and, you know, you're going to be really interested in this. There's all these errors in it. And I emailed them back from my Candra address, which, you know, says who we are and it had my job title in. And I just said, look, I'll be honest, there's nothing you I'm going to find interesting in your audit, kind of leave me alone type thing. And the, the reply was to send me a date for a call that they wanted to go through the audit. And they wanted 30 minutes and it was on a Friday and I had some time free. So I was like, okay, let's hear what they have to say. And on that call, I got some really interesting advice. So this is obviously advice they're giving people, which was, so some of the problems was that the HTML to text ratio on my site was wrong and that it needed to be in balance. So I needed a 50-50 ratio of code to content which even even when even when people did used to talk about um you know content to code ratio when some people thought that was a thing that that isn't what they do but no it hasn't yeah even even when it kind of maybe was a thing it wasn't that thing but (laughs) this this scale this this spiral to the point where i was told that to rank in google what i needed to do was they were going to give me content that was, they were going to put on my site, which was going to be invisible to my site users. And that content would link to their websites, which would help me rank in Google. And I had to pay them for that. So it was essentially basically building, building links to their PBN from cloaked content on my site. So it was, it was huge. It would have been hugely damaging for my site because I would have been breaking Google's webmaster guidelines by cloaking and, you know, having all this stuff on my site and they would have got all the benefit. So essentially I was doing SEO for them and, and paying them for it. That's, and that's the worst advice I've seen. Um, apart from that, it's just the, the, the standard things you see with audits where, you know, you just get exported kind of SEM rush reports, things like that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, um, Having the background in the ad industry, I working working at some quite large agencies, and then moving to a smaller independent in two thousand and one, and then moving into SEO, there is, um, and I think part of it is with SEO is the relative immaturity of it as an industry, and so I think that as time goes on, there is a sort of rising tide in terms of quality, but there are these agencies that still produce an approach which is i don't know i don't know how you can classify it okay ethically they're probably if you think about the worst sort of estate agent or used car salesman the sort of the ethically worst version of that they operate at that sort of sphere and um i just sort of think if you're going to spend your career doing something let's do it that is spending your time trying to achieve something positive rather than that kind of thing which is just reputationally very short term and it's just you're going to be really really badly thought of i just can't i don't know i don't understand it i don't understand it i think it makes it hard as well then when we've engaged with clients that have been burned by those kinds of agencies um because it then makes it hard for them because there's there's an element of trust i think yeah that's required between a client and an agency to to do a good job and obviously when they've when they've had that trust kind of broken before, if you like, it, it could be hard for them to actually then have a productive 
uh, working relationship with any agency. Absolutely. And I think it's almost like what I imagine if you um, move into from your first marriage to a second marriage, you've got a lot of emotional baggage from the first one that you need to resolve by the time you're ready for the second one. And uh, as your role when you're speaking to clients is that sort of, you end up not counselling them, but you have to empathise into their situation. It's terrible. So on the client's side or the agency side, what can be done to improve the quality of the work that a client gets? So from, from the agency side, and I think this is sometimes looked over, is to have an onboarding process where the SEO agency team and the marketing team gets to know the client. So if we think about the points of contact when, when you first meet the client, depending on the agency, um, they will normally speak be speaking to different people in that first contact to who they end up working with. Yeah. So some agencies have kind of new business people. Um, like I, I generally speak to most of our, our new clients before they're onboarded. And then usually they will go to some kind of account manager, account strategist, that kind of role and, and interact with the team. And normally there's some loss of fidelity of information that happens there. So the people that have the initial conversations to do the pitch, they really understand the client, who they are, what they do, what their business is about to a certain level. And sometimes I've seen that as this information gets passed down to the kind of implementation execution team, it just becomes like a set of maybe targets and objectives and it's yes. like too much of a skeleton. So an onboarding process is, is, and it doesn't have to be like a grand thing, but it's really where the, the team directly speak to the client. They start to understand what are this client's, um, you know, mission, vision, values, because that plays into all of the marketing and the messaging that they're going to be doing and understanding what that client's brand is actually about. Yeah. So if you're doing things like outreach or producing um, content, it becomes very quick to then say, well, this, I don't think this feels right for this client. And again, I've, I've seen that happen where you, it, again, but that process has kind of been missed where you'll be then producing work. It goes back to the client and they're a bit like, mm, what's this? And then you get into that conversation of, well, this is kind of what we need to do to build links or whatever. So I think a lot of that can be uh, ironed out right at the beginning um, and it's good for the relationship as well, which, as I said a minute ago, like trust is key to a lot of this yeah. process because it does take time. Um, and trust is related to, so if I had to give two things, the onboarding process would be one for the agency think, side. Yeah. And the for the client side, it would be something not to do, which is micromanagement. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is trusting the agency to deliver. Um, providing them obviously with what they need but the relationships that I've seen that have been difficult for clients to get the best out of are ones where they're for instance asking for breakdowns of how every single hour was spent and what it was spent on because those things take time you know to do and actually can eat up quite a lot of time with that kind of auditing if you like and that is time the agency or the freelancer, whoever you're using can, can be using actually to get results for you. Um, unless you're asking them to do it outside of the time you're paying them for, uh, but then essentially you're, you're asking them to take their time 
to do free stuff, which isn't going to obviously go down well, you know, occasionally there's stuff that, you know, you have to, you have to do, but that kind of lack of trust normally is a, is a catalyst for other things not going great. So for the agency to um, bring to life what the onboarding process is like and try and bring people from the, the actual team that are delivering the work on as soon as possible, and then the client side to empower and trust the agency and back them. Definitely. So what sort of factors are included in the best brief that you've ever seen, Mark? So briefs are inter- <laughs> really interesting because they vary so wildly um, in terms of the ones I've received. I've received super detailed, like multi-page briefs, and I've received kind of like quarter of a page briefs before. And the I think the best briefs are the ones that just specify what you want, maybe the why, but not the how you want it, okay? And what I mean by that is I've received briefs before that's basically said, look, we want to achieve this, and this is how we want to go about doing it. Basically, can you, and so it's essentially just like, can you give us a price for this? Mm-hmm. And I've gone back to them and said, look, if, if this is what you're trying to achieve, there's actually a much better way to do this. You can do it this way. And then the kind of response is, well, that's not what the brief is because we want to, we want to do it this way. And I I feel unless you are a specialist in that area, which I think is going to be unlikely a lot of the time, if you're reaching out to an agency to do that specialist thing for you, the normally the, the, the best brief you can give them is just, this is what we want to achieve. How would you go about it? Because then you're leaning into their expertise and the cross-section of experience they've got, and you'll see different approaches. If you tell someone essentially how to do their job, you're going to get this, the same answers back and you're making a decision then on price alone. So you're automatically dis, you're discarding the possibility of getting some really great ideas um, yeah, absolutely. So there's no, it's a price-based gig rather than a value-based one on the knowledge and experience of the people you're working with. Yeah. So I think, you know, that's in my view, at least why you use an agency, because, you know, they're not just an extra pair of hands that you need, because that's kind of what you hire for generally, if you just have more of the same work, it's normally you have a specialist requirement, we don't have the skill set in house, or you need an outside view, you know, to me, it's like, a, you know, we're like a specialist in this area. So just tell us what you want. And we will tell you using, you know, the strategies we use the best way to get that. And um, the, the other things are just technical detail, which is at, at the point of giving the brief, you know, tell us, um, tell us about the site, what's it running, what technologies to use, what CRMs are there, because all of these things, again, can affect the type of options you have when putting together approaches in a proposal, whether it's, we definitely can't do that because it's this, or, you know, we can do this because we we know they've got a CRM system. So any background technical um, detail, and even the, the resource that you have as well. So usually we'll be working with in-house client teams. So let, let us know how your team structure is set up as well. So what we're going to be interacting with. So again, it's building up this picture of, you know, a brief should be a lot more than just this is what we want to achieve. This is the problem. 
it should then say, okay, and this this is the playing field, build a picture of this is the parameters we're operating in, and this is the team that you're going to be working with, reporting to, interacting with. So we know all the players that are on the stage, if you like. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's lots of different analogies I've heard people use about, you know, you know, writing a play and things like this, but building that picture of everyone and everything that's involved is a really is a really important part of a brief. Absolutely. And understanding in-house capacities and specialisms and their ability to contribute to what you've got to fulfill in the brief is really important. So. Absolutely. And the last thing, this seems super obvious, um, is to either have budgets or targets in the brief and certainly timescales as well. So I've seen briefs with without all of these things before. So just giving someone a blank, this is what we want to achieve without giving them a target had you've you've given them no way to set a budget um or giving them a budget without expectation of a target can also be problematic but having at least one of them you you either in my opinion need a target so if you say we're doing you know a million pound in sales and we want to get to 1.5 million then an agency is in a position to say okay to get that 500k this is what we think you need to spend that's kind of doable right or if you say we have X budget, you can then make a, a, an estimate at, okay, we think we can make this much impact for that budget. And so with budgets, there's the, um, I think sometimes with clients, there's a sensitivity. So if a client comes in and says, okay, we've got £10,000 a month, they know the proposal they will get will be for £10,000 a month. Or you might put in an option for five, eight and 10 or whatever it is. Um, and so sometimes there can be a hesitancy to do that. But I think it's um, what are your views in terms of would you work on a like a request for pitch or a brief or a tender for a client that hasn't given the budget? If it has targets, yes. So I, so the, the, there's a, that's a multifaceted question. So I would qualify first that we're in the same kind of ballpark in terms mm-hmm. of they have enough budget to to realistically do what they want to do, but as long as they have a target, I will I I would I would do that. So again, if they said we're doing a million pounds through organic a year and we want to get to a million and a half, I could have a look at their site and then give them an idea for the kind of investment I think yeah. they would need. Um, that I, we've certainly encountered that hesitancy around budgets before, and I. You know, I when I've spoken to clients and I said, you know, what's your target? And they're like, we're not sure. And then I say, what's the budget? And they're like, can you tell us? Then it's a no. Like, I'm not going to do a proposal from that because, that firstly, there there is there is a budget there, whether they want to say or not. Because if you start from a million pounds a month and work your way down, you'll soon find that most people don't want to spend a million pounds a month. So, <laughs> so there is at least a maximum they will uh-huh. spend. And this question of, oh, well, if we say £10,000 a month is our budget, we will get a proposal back for £10,000 a month. Yes, of course you will, because that's that's the budget that we've been given. And, you know, you will get better results for £10,000 a month than you would for 5000 and much better than if you spent £1,000 a month. So if you have a set budget, then we can tell you the impact of that. You know, I, I do think that it needs to be accountable in terms of if, if you're saying you'll spend this, what we're going to get from it. Um, I never give proposals with a with like a choice of options myself um, because, you know, there's there's normally a target that we will get to. 
mm-hmm. and I will tell them what we need to get to that target. So there isn't a, you know, a three thousand pounds and a seven thousand pound option. It's if you want to hit this target, this is what I think we need to invest, and this is our best guess. You know, if the target's not half of that, so we're not going to propose spending half of that. That makes sense. That makes absolute sense. Um, and in t- so, in terms of the lead qualification process, that's f- that's very important for you, then. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's it's really just to save our time and the client's time, really. I mean, SEO is one of the harder things, I think, even when you've got a lot of experience in it to judge how long exactly it's going to take and what you're going to get out the other end. You know, especially with people that haven't done it before. Mm -hmm. So for clients that have done some kind of SEO before, they have normally a visible momentum. So you can see how they've been moving around Google and how their traffic's been going. And from that, you can kind of extrapolate at least, uh, you know, a fair estimate. At, this is our rate of progression. When you have clients, especially with like new websites, new domains, it can become very difficult. And then it becomes a case of looking at the competition and just highlighting, you know, where they stand with that. And again, the rate of movement of the competition. So it's likely if they're in any kind of competitive area that their competitors are not ranking where they are by chance. They're also doing SEO. And then the analogy of I've always used is that, you know, if SEO is a marathon, which kind of it is, it's this long game. You know, if you wanted to go and win a marathon, you wouldn't join in and then run slower than everyone else, right? Because, you know, you're not going to win. Yes, you'll be taking part. And the same applies in terms of SEO and committing a realistic uh, spend. You know, if your competitors are ranked number one, and this is a brutal place to be in, you know, if they're ranked number one and they're earning good money from that, they're in a position to reinvest in their SEO and their Mm -hmm. content. Um, And, you know, sometimes you just, if you're coming in and you're, you know, page two, you're going to have to just out, outspend them um, or outthink them, or, you know, you have to put in more legwork to catch up, to make yourself better. There isn't a free pass. Uh, So sometimes it does take some cash to do that. And, you know, when you look at Google's goal, which is to, you know, rank the kind of best, most helpful content, that's a difficult and expensive task to get right. So I don't paint, you know, draw any illusions that it's going to be, you know, quick and easy and cheap. There's definitely a difference you'll get depending on the people you work with in terms of the quality of the SEO and its longevity in terms of the tactics used. But I think you need to be real with people um, and, and give them this real view on what their competitors are doing and what the investment needs to be to beat them. Because I've seen what happens the other side and the other side is um, the SEO agency just agrees to work for whatever budget the client has, which they know isn't enough. And whether the client spends 15 grand in a year or 30 grand when it's all kind of washed up, doesn't make a huge difference if they spent 15 grand in the year and they got nothing or they spent 30 grand maybe and broke even and then next year they're going to make money. You know, they're still going to be annoyed if they spend any amount of money and basically get nothing out the end of it. So, you know, this is a, this is a situation where it's not, it's not you spend half and get half, it's you spend half and you get nothing. Absolutely. And so it's about then, you know, that qualification process, making sure that there is a 
ability for the agency to gain significant momentum and sort of velocity with an SEO project to actually make a tangible difference to real business objectives. Yeah. And it comes back down to, um, you know, think just things like their, their cash flow. Um, and if they don't have the cash flow to support what I think is, you know, the required effort, then I would, you know, normally tell them not to do it and actually to look at other channels or other strategies to begin with. So, you know, lots of people jump into SEO, for instance, without even looking at PPC. And while I would never suggest, you know, you build a whole business around putting all your eggs in a PPC basket, the logic of, you know, if you're not doing it, it's still search traffic. So if organic traffic is going to convert, there's a fair case that paid search traffic will also convert and you should be able to make you know a profitable ppc campaign and therefore you can reinvest the profits and also i speak just while i'm on that i speak to a lot of people saying oh we're doing seo so we can reduce reliance on ppc or or reduce spend and in my experience if you did a kind of a venn uh, diagram the overlap between people that click on the ads and click on organic is fairly small they tend to be different audiences so if you switched off your ads, all that would happen is they're not going to click on your organic result. They'll just click on whatever ad is still at the top. Absolutely. I don't think there's much cannibalization between paid and organic. Mm. We've got a couple of clients that we're speaking to at the moment on, um, they want a long-term organic strategy, but they haven't yet released their product and um, they need some results immediately. And so it's a really bad situation to be in. So our advice to them is, to trial paid search, accrue some learnings based on different categories and segments of keywords. And if they then convert, then it's worth then having an emerging um, sort of organic strategy to start producing content and optimizing the site for the, the terms are actually converting. Yeah, 100%. There's, there's always information you can transfer over, like you're saying, from PPC. But if the, if the conversation starts, you know, like we need results straight away we need quick results then it's very easy to qualify it's like brilliant seo is not for you yeah let's look at paid let's look at paid paid's the only way you're going to get instant results really like that that are scalable and 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 reliable and uh, the final thing i'll say there's something that i find delightful with clients that view organic is that that free traffic that google gives you and they don't realize that actually if you're investing i don't know five ten grand a month in terms of paid search why haven't you got a comparable strategy to try and accrue organic traffic as well? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the, again, the analogy I use there is about equity and, you know, you're not building equity really with, with PBC. And by that, I mean that the money you spend, once you stop spending it, everything just stops overnight, right? You don't, that all that traffic's gone. Whereas with the SEO stuff, you know, you're investing in content and outreach and et cetera. And when, if you did stop that, you still have equity and that you still own that content on your site, still helpful to people. It will still drive traffic. So yeah, definitely always scares me when I see people that are like, you know, 70% reliant their business on, on PPC. Yeah. It's not a long-term thing. Perfect. Mark, this has been great. Where can people find out more about you online? So obviously with Canda is our site. We've got our own podcast there. I talk about SEO and PPC every week. Um, I also publish daily, well, the days I'm working, unsolicited SEO tips on LinkedIn. So you can find me just Mark Williams Cook. 
Um, so in, interestingly, fun facts, since I got, I, I double barreled my name when I got married. So I used mm-hmm. to just be Mark Cook. And I, I think I'm the only Mark Williams hyphen cook on the internet. That's so yeah, if you want to, I'm incredibly easy to stalk. So basically, if you just want to find me somewhere, just type Mark Williams Cook into Google and I'll pop up. <laughs> For good or worse. There is a um, American fashion designer called Alex Holliman and there's a, a South American evangelical sort of Pentecostal preacher called Alex Holliman as well. So don't get me confused with that. <laughs> no way. Yeah, yeah I'm, pretty, I'm pretty easy to find. Perfect. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. All right, gang. Thanks for listening. If you found the conversation useful, please join me again next time for Choosing an Agency.